a reading from the first letter of Paul to the church at Corinth. Listen for the word of God to you today. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to invite you to close your eyes just for a moment. We're not going to do anything dangerous. Don't worry. Just close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to think back to one of the best meals you've ever had with your family. So just think about that for a second. Little moment. Best meals with your family. And now I'm going to... Keep your eyes closed. He's just going to go a little deeper. Who cooked it? What did you eat? What did the table look like? Who was there? What did you talk about? What did you laugh about? Was it a special occasion, or do you realize that, no, it was an ordinary meal that was actually pretty extraordinary looking back. Keep picturing that meal. And the question I want to ask this morning, you can open your eyes, is what made the meal you're thinking of so special? When I was 13, food was a big deal. I was growing fast and always hungry. Maybe some of you can remember what that was like, or some of you might have parents or grandkids, and they're always hungry. As soon as I got home from school, I asked three burning questions. When's dinner? What's for dinner? Who's coming? We didn't eat out a lot as a family. You know, in my town, we just didn't have a lot of restaurants. Maybe it was, of course, a different era. I remember going to Hojo's, Howard Johnson's, when we were on vacation. That was really special. Um, but that's about it. You know, our, anything that was a special meal, a birthday meal or something like that, it was always at home. Um, and it was around the very same table that we used for um, homework, uh, playing cards, puzzles, wrapping gifts. It was the everything table. It was the only table we had. What I loved about that table was I watched my dad make it when I was a boy. You know, piecing it together. He's cutting the two by fours, varnishing, planned it all out. It's in a, like a weird diamond shape. It's like unique. There's no other table like it. Not just because he made it, but because it's just unique. You'll hear more about it. And at that table, which I thought, you know, one of a kind, uh, we ate um, meatloaf. 
uh, pot roast, goulash. Uh, these were my mom's greatest hits. And I don't like any of them. Um, my mom's still alive, um, but she's not connected to the internet, so I think I'm safe um, that she's not going to hear this. But in the event that you run into Nancy Gabelius, tell her your son loves your cooking. Okay? All right? We're just, okay. But you know what? Maybe you can relate to this too. It's like, at least in that time, it, it was not, you know, family meals were not about the menu. They were not about me. It was about all of us being together. That was the big thing that, that my mom stressed. You know, it wasn't whether you liked the food or not. That didn't matter so much. And I think that's what still makes family meals special in our home today. Um, in the home that Carrie and I have made, um, family meals can take place almost anywhere. Um, probably most often, they're in the family room around a coffee table with the glow of the television on. Okay, that's where, where we often eat. But we do have a kitchen table, and we eat at that sometimes. And sometimes, very rarely, um, we will uncover everything that's on the dining room table, and we will use that. Um, uh, we bought it when we were first married, and it's like, this is going to be the heirloom that we will pass on to our children. And maybe it will be, um, but pretty quickly, you know, with three kids, it like literally is covered now with, you know, paint, Sharpie, like all kinds of stuff. And early on, I was like, this is why we can't have nice things. And, and, and now, oh my gosh, that table is so precious. It's the patina of love and age. like every little mark there. I'm like, oh, this is so great. It reminds me of this and that. I, I bet some of you can relate to that. You know, all the craft projects and science fairs and everything else that took place there. And, and like I say, these days it's rare. And because of that really special, when we're all gathered around one table, Aaron, our middle child, um, the one studying music at Duquesne, um, he just came home from, or for spring break yesterday. And I'm looking forward to some meals with him and with the whole family this week. I realize how important that is. Some of you can probably relate to that too. I wonder if some of the things that make our family meals so special also make this meal so special. They're not so different. Most often when I asked, when's dinner? My mom didn't respond with the time. She would just say, whenever your father gets home. And I accepted that. We lived in a very structured, regimented household, and it was pretty amazing. You know, as soon as I heard the garage door open, about 20 minutes later, the launch sequence had been activated and dinner magically appeared on the table. And many of you know, it wasn't magic at all. It was hard work and planning, but it was just amazing how that's what matters. When dad came home, then dinner was coming soon afterwards. Dinner could never come soon enough for me. And I'd complain to my mom, you know, well, I'm starving now. So, you know, I'd take a cookie or 12 and um, uh, bring them into my room, and, and I would just chow down on those. And um, my gosh, that is satisfying um, in one sense. You know, it, it's comforting and everything. 
the, the problem was, of course, you, you eat enough cookies, you know, you're really not hungry for stuff that can actually be good for you. And I, I think the same thing can happen with spiritual hunger. That, you know, there's times in our lives when, when we're craving God so much, but all we experience at that moment is just plain hunger. We don't know, really care what it's for. We just want something to fill us. And so we go to our spiritual refrigerator. By the way, this is all a metaphor. Just work with me here. Okay. So you go to that and you just pull out what, whatever's easiest, you know, and we fill ourselves up with that in the hope of just kind of numbing that hunger. And when we do that, I think when it comes to Sunday morning or to praying or open the Bible, we find like, I'm not that hungry anymore. You know, I think sometimes that, that ache we have inside, which is uncomfortable, is meant to lead us to God. It's meant to lead us to this table. But if we get sidetracked by what I call that spiritual junk food, we may not make it. We may think, oh, I'll, next time, next time. I think we'd really be missing out. When Presbyterians ask, when's dinner? A great answer can always be some variation of what my mom said. Well, as soon as your father gets home. Until then, don't fill up on easy answers and mind-numbing news feeds and so on. Save your spiritual appetite for what can really do your body good. If you ask St. Paul when the Last Supper was, I think he might say something along the lines of, it was exactly when it needed to be. Because you remember it was Maundy Thursday and the same night that Jesus was betrayed. So think about that. When we're feeling vulnerable, betrayed, at a loss for words, things that maybe Jesus felt that night, you know, maybe that's a perfect time for the Lord's Supper. So when is the Lord's Supper? Right now, when you need it. It may seem odd that the most sacred meal of all Christian meals is something as simple as bread and juice. You know, not very fancy. Wonderful bread, thank you, Kate. But it's bread and juice. This is essentially the equivalent of what a lot of us are snacking on in kindergarten or preschool, just grape juice, white bread. In the Lutheran church, though, it wasn't just juice. Maybe some of you grew up with it. It was wine. And my friends and I, you know, a little bit like Kylie and Caleb and their friends, we would sit in the back and we would always like put somebody up to asking, asking the pastor, could we have seconds? Um, and he was not amused, you know, whatever, but gee, we were. We thought we were hilarious. Um, but even when churches have wine, it's not expensive wine. It's not fancy. And I think that's part of the point is it's very simple because it's not about the food per se. Special meals, the food's one component, but there's a lot more to it. Christians have different ideas about what exactly we're eating when we gather at this table. Some Christians, like our Baptist neighbors see only bread and juice. Okay. Because they focus especially on Jesus' words, do this in remembrance of me. 
for them, the dinner consists of ordinary bread and juice, almost like the bread and juice of a Passover Seder, which Jesus' meal was. A Seder and the Last Supper was a memorial meal, reminding the participants of what God had done long ago with the Exodus, or when we eat together, reminding us of what God did for us on the cross. When our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters gather for Mass, they see the bread and wine as Jesus' literal body and blood offered anew on what they would call an altar. That's where sacrifices take place. That's one of the reasons we call this a chancel. For us, it's not an altar per se. But in the Roman Catholic Church, it's called an altar because they're focusing on the literal meaning of Jesus' words. This is my body. This is my blood. They think that in some way, while the bread and the juice look ordinary to us, God has transformed it inwardly into Christ's actual body and blood. And we too believe that Jesus is really present in this bread and juice, but in a completely different way. We don't think during the Lord's Supper that their substance is transformed. Instead, during communion, by the power of the Holy Spirit at work this morning, these elements, bread and juice, are going to be filled with that very same Holy Spirit. Jesus' real presence will be with us today, in, with, and under the bread and the juice. Calvin and the Presbyterians who followed him said that the Lord's Supper, yep, it's a time of remembrance, but there's also something new and holy happening right now in this moment. We're connecting and communing with God and with each other in real time. Think about this. Just as the fullness, everything that God was, was pleased to dwell in Jesus, in communion, the fullness of Jesus, his body and blood, is pleased to dwell in us. That's why it's so important that you're here for communion today. That everyone is here for communion. Because we can't be Christ's body without you. We need each other. We didn't always think this way. In the old days, people were obsessed with who should be allowed to come to the Lord's table. And back then, children weren't invited. The thought was that kids should wait until confirmation, until they professed their own adult faith before they could come to the table. Now, age doesn't matter. Even baptism itself isn't a prerequisite. If you're spiritually hungry, if you want to draw closer to Jesus, and your parents think you're ready, come. If you're over 80, we waive the parental consent rule. Um, and I get it. It's important for, for children of all ages to understand as best they can what this meal is about. And we offer communion training to help with that. But let's be, let's be real. Does any of us know exactly what God is doing in this meal at the moment it's happening? That's why we call this 
a holy mystery. And maybe, maybe of all people, children can appreciate mysteries. Certainly better than me. Some churches still insist that you have to believe exactly like they do to be welcome at the table, not us. We don't demand unity of thought at the table. Think about that. If you required unity of thought at a dinner table today, would you have anyone to share a meal with? Right? Right? No, that, that is not a requirement. Hunger is. That's, that's the idea. That's what brings us together. You have to be hungry for Jesus. Now, again, in the old days of the Presbyterian Church, every member had to be examined and approved by the session before they could receive communion. And this process took a long time. It's partially responsible for, if you ever wonder, well, why do you know, we celebrate the Lord's Supper just once a month? Some, some Presbyterian churches that I started in would be like six times a year. Why so infrequently? Well, part of it was in old times... It was a long process to make sure that everybody was approved for communion. When you were, after you were examined by the session, they'd give you a little lead token imprinted with the church's name right on it. And then when you came to worship on that communion Sunday, you would present that token as proof that you were acceptable. It was kind of like your invitation to show that you could come to the Lord's Supper. Thank God we don't do that anymore. And what made us ever think that we were in a position to judge others' worthiness. None of us is worthy. We're all here by invitation only from Jesus. So there's a place for you, even if you're different. Remember I told you about that table my dad built. He built it with Uncle Ernie in mind. This was a guy, like some of you had these uncles that, that you, you wonder, how are we related? And then you eventually found that we're not related at all. But, but anyway, so Ernie and my dad, they were like best friends, at least from their early 20s. They went, did all kinds of stuff together until eventually Ernie was in a, a, an accident, um, uh, became a, a paraplegic. Yeah, and so he couldn't use, use his legs at all. So to get around, it was a wheelchair. Of course, as a kid, I was fascinated by this, um, that he had to use a wheelchair. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world, you know. So when he would come to his house, we'd have to figure out ways to get him into the house and move around and everything. So when my dad was making the table, he was thinking of Uncle Ernie. And so he built that table in such a way that the top of the table, it's kind of hard to imagine, but the top of the table could move independently of the legs. So that way, Ernie could roll up to the end of the table until his legs hit the table's legs. And then we could just slide the table right up to him. And he could just sit there and eat, play cards, do all those kinds of things. My father loved Ernie so much that he didn't require his friend to change so that his friend could come to the table. Of course, that would have been impossible. But instead, he decided, you know what? We'll change how we eat so that Ernie can be part of things. And for the past 50 years, the Presbyterian Church has been doing a variation of just that. Adapting to open up space at this table so there's room for everyone. It's the same communion meal as always. Bread and juice. But I think more people feel included. And that's wonderful. That's progress. I hope 
you're beginning to see, and maybe you've always known, that there's more going on here than meets the eye. It's a meal that strengthens us for today and brings us hope for tomorrow. It's a meal that unites us with God and each other. It's a meal that echoes that one long ago when Jesus gathered with his closest friends, his second family, if you will, for Passover. And only Jesus knew that it'd be their last earthly supper together. Yeah, what they ate was interesting that night. But just as important is what Jesus said and did at the meal. It was a teaching moment, too. There will come a day for each of us when we leave this earth and cross over to the great unknown. As believers, we hold fast to our faith. It's a place we've never been. It's the great mystery. Let's say you knew it was coming. You had one night left on this planet. What would you say to your friends, your family? What would you want them to remember when you were gone? Jesus knew he was about to make that journey. Newly arrived in Jerusalem, he'd gathered with his disciples for one last Passover meal. The atmosphere outside was tense, and inside, the disciples had been arguing with one another, feuding for his favor. Who would be most important? Who would get to sit at his right hand? Instead of declaring who would be in charge of what, Jesus filled a basin with water, draped a simple towel over his arm. He knelt before each one of them, washing their feet and scrubbing their hearts. Outside, the religious leaders were plotting Jesus' death, and inside, he's giving his followers a mandate, a command. Live humbly serve sacrificially and love others the way that I loved you. That last statement is everything. And Jesus was about to show the world exactly what it looked like. in a few moments, and I hope you come too, every one of us in this sanctuary, you can expect to be filled, connected, loved, and forgiven. You can expect to feel differently in some way afterwards. But as you just heard, when we leave this table, I think Jesus expects us to act differently too. We leave forgiven to forgive. Fed by Jesus himself, his own body and blood, we go out to feed others. And accepted by God, we accept others with grace. The most special meals of all don't just change how we feel, they change how we live.
Let's prepare our hearts.